The statistics are grim. One in five working moms say they've been passed over for an important assignment or for a promotion because they have children. And women who take even one year off to have kids come back to earn 40% less than their peers. Working moms outpace, outperform, and outwork their peers. So why don't companies make an effort to support working moms? And how can working moms advocate for themselves in the workplace and in their careers? Frankly, we're tired of asking for a seat at the table. It's time to make our own table, and we're going to talk about how. I'm Zabine Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Hello, hello, and welcome from the suburbs of New York City to Moms at Work. I'm Zabine Mirza, and of course, you're listening to the official Jobs.mom podcast. We have a really humbling episode today, and what we're doing is showcasing a real-life hero, a hometown hero, really. So we already know that moms are heroes, okay? And I've got one today that really exemplifies that word. And she's somebody, she walks among us, shops among us, does all the mundane things right alongside us. But she's also doing something quite extraordinary that we might not see or we even realize. And she, of course, will never talk about it, brag about it. Um, I brought her kicking, screaming, fighting here today. Um, and to me, you know, that's a hero. And today's hometown hero, she's a mother, a working mother. She's a CEO. She's the CEO of 914 Cares, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to support neighbors in our community who struggle to meet basic human needs. I have with me today our very own real life hometown hero, Jessica Reinman. Jess, thanks for being here with me on Moms at Work. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're you know, obviously you're amazing and uh, it's so humbling because you have dedicated your life to helping others and I have dedicated my life to helping myself, right? But uh, tell that us. Is not, that is not, <laughs> that is completely not the case. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm so humbled, you know, the, the work that you're doing. First, tell us a little bit about yourself so the listeners can understand your background and how you ended up uh, at 914 Cares. And so anyone that wants to check out the website, it's the numbers 914cares, C-A-R-E-S, uh, .com. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. It's, it's .org. Oh, .org. Sorry. 914cares.org. <laughs> what did I tell you, Jess? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so about me, um, I grew up in the New York City suburbs and um, <clears throat> I grew up in a very, very, very wealthy suburb, um, and my parents made the decision when I was um, when they were pregnant with me that they wanted to live in the best school district they could. So they bought the smallest house in the large in the best school district. And um, what that meant for me growing up is that even though both of my parents were teachers, so we clearly weren't poor, um, I was by far and away the poor kid at school. Um, and um, I think that it affected me in the sense that I grew up really resenting rich kids. And um, I always feeling like no matter what I did, 
there was like something that I could have or do better. So anyhow, I went to college at Binghamton University, which is the State University of New York. And um, it was the first time that I realized, like, when I got to Binghamton, most people there weren't from two-person two working households. And I almost became like the, I'm not, obviously not rich, but like the more um, in, entitled person in, in the group of friends that I sort of made. Um, and so it was a really interesting change. I got to see sort of both sides of the coin, right? So um, <clears throat> my parents were able to give me a, to get me a car when I was a junior in college. Um, and I wound up driving everybody around um, because most people couldn't get cars. Um, so I graduated Binghamton and I went straight to um, Cardozo Law School. Um, and I graduated Cardozo in 2000. Uh, my goal in life had always been to be a prosecutor, and um, I interviewed and was offered a job at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. The same day, I was offered a job at a, at the time, it doesn't exist anymore, a very big New York City law firm. The job offer from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office was for $42,000 a year. And the job offer from the firm that I was working at was $96,000 a year. I'm telling you all these numbers because it's crazy. My loans for law school, which my parents could not afford to pay, were going to be close to $100,000. And so when I sat down as an intelligent person, I realized I couldn't, I couldn't follow my dream because there was just no way that I was going to be able to keep up. And at the time, when I was graduating, there were no loan forgiveness programs. It just wasn't like that. And so I took the job at the big New York City law firm. From the time I was offered the job until I started, my salary went from $96,000 to $125,000. So I was 20, I think when I started, I was 26 years old and I was making $125,000 a year, including benefits. And I was single. And had no dependents. And I spent a lot of time at Gucci and Prada. A lot. <laughs> I was sort of making up for like, you know, what I, what right. I didn't have when I was young. Um, and so I, I worked as a lawyer for less than 18 months. I hated every single minute of it. And this is not to offend any women listening who are lawyers. I'm just much more of an in-your-face people person. And, and working at a, at a corporate law firm in New York is just was not the right move for me. And so um, in 2002, I um, moved over to the administrative side of law firm and I started doing recruiting. Um, and recruiting at law firms is really fun. Um, so it's you basically you recruit law students. So at the time they were around my age um, and you go on campus and you have parties for them. And then in the summer, they're they're summer associates. And there's like eight weeks of nonstop partying, which I go to. I, I mean, I was I was with my husband at the time, but we weren't married. And um, oh, no, we were married. And, you know, we and I went out every night. And the firm paid for everything. I went to, you can't name a restaurant in New York City that I didn't go to for dinner. Um, and it was, it was great fun. There's a lesson that I try and teach my daughter and her friends. And I think it's a really great lesson for all women, especially younger women, you know, women in their 20s and 30s coming up in the world. 
no matter how much you love your job, at some point, you're going to become better than your job. Yes. And so what, that's, this is what happened to me. What happened is, is I loved that job, man. I loved it so much. And slowly but surely, you move up the ranks. And so I went from, well, you know, you're really too you're too good to like waste on the students. So you should really work with like the latter lawyers. Those, those are lawyers that have already been practicing and want to move to a different law firm. So now I'm sort of out of the fun and I'm working with, you know, more senior people. I mean, I still kept my hands in the fun at that point, you know, but then I was, had my first baby. And so I, I didn't want to be out every night. And um, so it's sort of, it, it was a good move for that time in my life. Um, when uh, my daughter was two, we decided to move out of the city and move to um, your Chappaqua, which is, has been, and I know each other. And, uh, and I left working because I just couldn't imagine the commute. My husband um, has a very big job and he's pretty much never in the country. And so I felt like I had to be home. It was an unmitigated disaster. I was definitely not meant to stay at home. And I'm saying this because I feel like a lot of women have this weight on their shoulders. Like if I work, then I'm a bad mother. And I had that. I mean, it was really, it was um, eight months of really horrible, horrible depression and, um, and, and this woman who lived on my street at the time. Um, who is still a Chappaqua mom and is wonderful. She um, came, she walked down my, and not ring, rang my doorbell probably like four or five months after I'd moved in. We moved in the winter. So it was the spring and she had an older daughter and her older daughter, her oldest daughter's name was Molly and my daughter's name was Molly. And so she said, I came down because I wanted to introduce big Molly to little Molly. And so I opened the door and she looks at me and she goes, oh, sweetheart, you need to get a job and you need to get a job fast. And she had never <laughs> met me before, <laughs> you know, and I said, wow. Um, and so I put myself out there. Um, I would only work part time. I had a ton of interviews um, and basically no one called me back because everybody wanted someone to work full time. Right. It happened to be that at that moment, there was a huge need for what I specialized in when I left. And so it was very hard to find somebody with my experience. And so one of the law firms that I had interviewed with after they interviewed a whole lot of other people said, fine, we'll take her part time. And so I went on to have an amazing career. The name of the law firm is Vincent and Elkins. They were phenomenally amazing to me. I worked, I started working um, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, no, sorry, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Um, and Tuesdays I worked from home. So I only went into the office on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, and I'll tell you the biggest compliment I ever received in my entire working professional life was um, at some point, it must have been a Friday or something, the hiring partner who I reported to, he sent me a text and he said, whenever you get a chance, come down to my office. And I said to him, dude, it's Friday. I'm not there. And he said, you know what? It's like, you're so responsive. I never know if you're here or if you're not here because, you know, and to me, that was the hugest compliment anyone could give me because it's really scary to work part-time. Yeah. It's really scary to be in a really big environment and be the one, you know, I was the first one they ever hired part-time um, in the whole law firm. And it's, it's, you know, an international law firm. 
I had some amazing mentors um, and it was an amazing ride. But going back to where I said, I started again being pushed up and up and up the ladder. Um, and um, I started traveling a ton. So I was in Texas at least a week a month. Um, I spent an entire summer in DC. Um, and at some point it just hit me. My daughter is going into fifth grade and my son is going into kindergarten and I can't, there were, there were many times where my husband and I were both on an airplane at the same time. And my nanny had like literally had the right to make life and death decisions for our children. And so anyhow, one day I got a call from my boss who said, you need to be in Texas more. And I said, okay, great. I'll call you back. And I called my husband and I said, so I just want to give you a heads up. I'm quitting. And he was right. like, when? And I was like, right now. <laughs> like, I'm about to give notice, but I wanted to at least do you the honor of saying I'm quitting now. And so um, there I was again. I think I'd been there eight years. I was there again with no job. Um, and so that's sort of my story. Where That's where the, my personal story ends and the 914 CARES journey begins. Um, yeah. And I don't want to I think I talked a lot, so. No, no. I mean, I think it's so important because there, there are so many threads in there that I think people need to to kind of let, you know, marinate a little bit. First, it's okay to hate being at home with your children. It's yeah. totally fine. Yes. So I'm going to, I'm going to say that again so yes. that every can, everyone can, can stop and, and consider that I did actually say that it is okay to hate being at home with your children. It is okay to not want to be at home with your children. It is fine, right? Um, there is nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mom, and there is nothing wrong with not wanting to be a stay-at-home mom. And whatever pressures or guilt you perceive around either decision you should completely dispel because it's of your own self-sabotage. It's, yeah. it's, it's on you. So number one, you don't have to be at home with your kids if you don't want to. They are not going to need therapy because you weren't there all day. They may need therapy for other things, but that is not going to be, you know, the reason. Um, and number two, if you're a working mom and you're, you, you know, you're listening to this, you're setting an example for your kids that mom can work. And moms can work and work successfully in high-powered roles. And they can see a partnership just like they saw between you and your husband that, you know, spouses and mom and dad can support each other or, you know, mom and, and her partner can support each other. And if mom is a single mom and, and props to so many single moms out there, mom is a hero. Mom is, is right. a superhero. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm a child of a single mother. So, you know, my mother, my mother was a hero. So that's number one. Number two, you know, I think what Jess mentioned, you know, you're talking about 2000, 2008, then 2010. We're in 2021 and literally nothing has changed. They don't want to hire part-time people. No matter how much you're spending time on a plane, you still need to be spending more, right? Um, and it's not sustainable when you have children. It's just not because your your nanny can pull the plug on a ventilator if God forbid it ever came to that. But 
Why should it come to that, that you are not there for your family when they need you? And so, you know, one of the biggest things that we're, we're focused on at Jobs.Mom and the work that we're doing is to really have employers take, take ownership of the fact they have to accommodate a changing labor force. And just because a woman has children does not in any way make her less able, less capable. And there should be alternative ways to prove her worth than spending 365 days a year on a flying tuna can, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that is my angry rant, you know, shaking, <laughs> shaking my fist at the clouds kind of, kind of moment. But now we transition, Jess, to 914 Cares. So talk to me about how you started or, or how did you end up at 914 Cares? So, so um, 914 Cares, I actually st I started it. I founded it with another Chappaqua mom. Her name is Dawn Greenberg. Um, and so when I, um, when I stopped working, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And so um, I, at the time, Dawn owned a store and I used to shop there all the time and um, we got to talking one day and, you know, it really hit me that I moved to this community um, and I worked and I came home and then I took my kids to their activities or, um, you know, and I, I, I guess I went out for dinner sometimes. So I knew some of the merchants, but I really didn't know the area. And she really explained to me the amount of poverty that existed in Westchester. Um, and I started seeing it myself as I was home more and I was driving around specifically in Mount Kisco. Um, and you really, in, in Mount Kisco, when you're driving there, um, you can feel it, it, it's a, it's Mount Kisco is for those who don't live anywhere in, in the tri-state area. It's, um, it's sort of its own town in the middle in between four or five very wealthy towns. Um, and it attracts a significant number of um, immigrants from South America and they come here, they've never seen a winter before, and it could be negative three degrees and they walk around without a jacket because they can't afford one and they didn't even know they needed one until they got here. And right. so, um, but just giving some background. So I said, okay, I have to volunteer. And so I tried to volunteer and every place I called to volunteer asked me, oh, are you with, you know, we don't really take single volunteers. So why don't you, um, why don't you try and volunteer through your synagogue or church? And I said, well, I'm, I don't belong to either. I'm not religious. Oh, well, why don't you ju join the junior league? The junior league does all of this volunteering stuff. And I said, I don't, I don't want to join the junior league. I just want to volunteer. Like, why can't I just come and volunteer? Anyhow, I mean, maybe I didn't do as much diligence because now being in the space, I know that there's so many places to volunteer. But um, so I decided, well, if if I said to them, if I come with a group, can we volunteer? And they said, oh, of course. So I started an organization that we called, Don and I, called 914, uh, called Chappaqua Cares. Chappaqua is where we live. And we said, okay. And really the philosophy when we started, we started in 2014. And the philosophy was everybody, everybody wants to give. Even people who can't afford to give, want to give. They just really don't know how. And if we give them the tools then they will. And so we started with a very simple philosophy. We're going we're gonna to help people figure out how to give time, give money, and give things. Um, and that was sort of the basis, you know, for a number of years, we um, connected with local nonprofits all around Westchester, and we said, hey, we have a group of volunteers, or we're happy to host a, a donation drive for you, or, you know, we're happy if you are planning an, an event, we're happy to, like, let our community know about your event. Um, 
and it sort of grew organically. Um, and in the, the December of 2018, we realized that we, and now I'm going to use a, a bad word, <laughs> so you may have to bleep it, but we needed to shit or get off the pot. So we either needed to take the organization to the next level and really focus it, or, you know, personally for me, I needed to get a job in a nonprofit because I really felt that that was my next place. Um, and John and John since left um, on great terms. We're still very good friends, um, but she she was leaning towards the political route. Anyhow, both of our husbands convinced us to stay with it, and we um, formed what we call 914 Cares um, in December of 2018 with the idea that we were going to start focusing specifically on poverty, specifically on poverty in Westchester County, and um, and really try and cover the whole county and work with a ton of non other nonprofits. So at the time, my husband, when he was describing what we did to people, he would say, we're sort of like a broker, right? This is a, this is maybe politically incorrect to say, but we're, we're going to talk to the rich and tell them where they need to give their time, their money, and their things. Um, and that's sort of what we did. We worked with all nonprofits. Most of them were in Northern Westchester at the time. We slowly moved South, um, and we sort of made partnerships with other nonprofits. So for those people who don't live um, in the in the New York City suburbs, there's a very unique thing, I, I, that's probably not the right word, about the suburbs of New York City. And it's not just Westchester. It's Nassau and Suffolk County in Long Island. It's New Jersey. It's Fairfield County in Connecticut. We have terrible transportation systems. Horrible terrible, no trains basically at all, unless they're going into the city. And the busing is sporadic at best. And so what happens in these communities is that I call, I call them hyper-local nonprofits emerge. And so there is a food pantry in every community in Westchester County. There's also some place for people to go and find work in every single town in Westchester County. Um, there's there's uh, child care centers in every single town in Westchester County. And so what we started to realize is all of these local nonprofits need to raise money. They need the things. They need the people. And they're all, you know, if you just take one small town, and I always use Mount Kisco because it's just a perfect example, you know, in Mount Kisco, there's a food pantry. There's a boys and girls club. There's a childcare center. There's, there's, and all of them, they're only in Mount Kisco. So they're all going to Mount Kisco, Chappaqua, res, the residents right around looking for everything. So what we really became and what we are in the process of rebranding, but we are basically, we've become the nonprofit for nonprofits. And so our nonprofits that focus on poverty. Um, so our goal really is to make the lives of those who are on the ground day to day in each of these very small communities, make the, the, the volunteers and the people who work directly, social workers and uh, medical professionals easier. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to, I want to say something as I'm listening to you, there is a huge disparity in the populations in the Westchester suburbs. You know, we live in a very affluent suburb of New York City. So there is very little to no real middle class 
right? There are the upper middle wealthy, and then there are, you know, the lower middle and then the, the, the lower, you know, the, the lower socioeconomic classes. And um, what you're doing is really incredible because not only are you providing, you know, basic human needs to, to people, but you're also in a way providing dignity to these people. And, you know, I'm just listening to you. I can't imagine, I can't imagine actually, because when you were talking in the beginning um, about how your parents bought the smallest house in the wealthiest, you know, town or the best school district, I had a very similar, you know, situation. I grew up in Brooklyn. I was born and raised three generations. And my father died when I was 12. And uh, he knew that he wanted us to live in the suburbs. And my father was a doctor. He was building a house on Long Island. And uh, he was never going to be able to see it completed because he had passed before he had cancer. So we waited for the house to be done. And we moved in maybe six, six to seven months after he passed. And suddenly we are, you know, from New York City where, you know, we shop at the bodegas and we're riding the train and the mayor who's a billionaire at the time <laughs> right is riding the subway alongside us and the richest people look like hobos and you know you don't know who's who and that's the beauty of the city and suddenly i am thrown into this place that i don't understand and i can't compete and you know my my childhood after my father died was really tough. We had a lot of real economic hardship. My mom was a single mom. My father was the breadwinner and he had left. And uh, a series of really awful tragedies had befallen my family and the financials that my father left behind. And so we had nothing. And I couldn't, I didn't have a car. I couldn't go to birthday parties because I couldn't buy a gift, right? And um, it was little things that made me feel small when I was yep. surrounded by people that had so much. And so when I'm listening to you speak, you know, these are people that are surrounded by so much wealth, but don't have a jacket and maybe their kids don't have shoes. And you're not only giving that to them, you're giving them, you know, dignity and respect. And I think, I, I think that in itself is worth so much merit. And and for everyone that's listening, just tell them. You don't have to be in New York if they want to donate to 914 Cares. What do they do? How do they how do they give to you guys? So um if you go onto our website, there's a pop-up the first time you log on um, and it gives you links to all of our Amazon wish lists. So we pretty much exist through wish lists. Um, and so um, right now we have a real need for diapers and wipes. Um, and there's a wish list that pops up right there. Um, and we also are giving out period supplies now on a regular basis, which I know since it's a mom site, I could say tampon and pad as many times as I want. Um, and so if you go there, we make it really easy for you to donate things. Um, if you want to donate money, you can absolutely go at the top. There's a huge, big red donate now button. Um, you asked me to provide statistics and I don't, I mean, it's, I have a couple things that I wanted to sort of just say, because it really it, it has to do with um, what you were just talking about. So for the, for, even for people who live in, in Westchester County, but for those who don't, um, who may know of it as the county where, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton live or where the governor of New York lives, um, 
Westchester County is the eighth wealthiest county in the United States. I mean, just stop and think about that for a second. In all of the United States, it's the eighth wealthiest county. Which, by the way, I'm just going to interject. You would never know if you saw the way I go to get gas or (laughs) go to buy milk. I am not in any way representative of that. So just, you know. Um, And so, um, but even more, I just want to drill down because it's so amazing because then I'm going to tell you the poverty stats and you're going to fall off your chair. So nine of the communities or nine of the towns in Westchester are among the top hundred wealthiest towns in the nation. So not only are we the eighth wealthiest county, but nine of our towns are 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 among the top hundred wealthiest. So we're talking about extreme wealth. Um, now I'm going to go to this, which just hold on to your hold on to your chairs. Forty percent, forty percent of the babies born in Westchester County are born to mothers on Medicaid. Wow! In order to be on Medicaid, you have to live below the poverty line. Wow. So think about those numbers. Yeah. It is insane, the division of wealth. Um, and it's really, honestly, it's what motivates me to get out of bed every day. Um, and it, this sounds really stupid. And I'm sorry, but my husband used to say that when my when my daughter said this phrase when she, she was younger, he used to say, that's the silliest phrase ever, but it's just really not fair. Yeah. It's just not fair that there are so many people with such extreme wealth. And then there are so many moms who cannot figure out how they're going to feed their babies. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. And, you know, you know, Jess, we talk about this all the time. We have enormous privilege, right? We're in this pandemic we have enormous privilege that we have jobs that we can work from home or be remote. Um, we can have help, right? We can have help even though, you know, I have an infant, uh, I have a pandemic baby that I haven't been able to, to get help with because of the situation. But we st- I'm working from home and my husband works from home and that is a privilege. We have the resources, the means. We have a roof over our heads. My children do not want for anything. Um, but there is 40% of, <laughs> of the people. And I talked about you in the beginning. You walk among us, shop among us. You know, Do we ever stop to look around and think, Maybe the person that I'm honking or cursing out to go faster, or maybe the person that, you know, I at the pharmacy that I've asked, you know, that that was maybe not, you know, that was maybe a little rude. You know, have we extended grace to these people? And if we think about this, it's so humbling because 40% of our neighbors are living below the poverty line. And these mothers, their experience is very different than ours. Now, Tell me and tell everybody listening, Jess, because there are women that are listening that don't live in the suburbs of New York City that are, you know, on Medicaid or just above the poverty line or struggling to make ends meet. You know, what are you seeing? How can these women advocate for themselves? They're they're in jobs that require labor or, you know, physical presence. They're struggling to provide for their kids and to, to juggle, you know, this childcare crisis in this country. What kind of support are you giving to these women and what advice would you give to women everywhere? So 
<clears throat> I actually come into work every day um, and I am of extreme privilege. Um, I do still have my same full-time nanny that I had um, when I was flying all over the place. Um, and so, uh, well, it's a two-part question. So let me start first with how you can get help. Um, and it's and unfortunately, it's very different in every state, and it's one of the issues. So when you're talking about nonprofits and you're specifically talking about poverty, there's two ways for nonprofits to help those in need. One is to advocate on their behalf, and two is to give them what they need right now. So 914 Cares focuses on the second. We do very little advocacy work because what we see as our mission and everyone who works here fully believes in the mission is like, we need people to have what they need right now. And like, yes, we need to advocate for better policies and procedures and, and government aid, but we, we need to leave that to someone else because what we really need to do is get diapers onto babies' butts and tampons into women so that they can go to work and clothing on children so they can go to school. Um, so my best, and, and when, it, when people call here and ask for help, my, my best suggestion is the best place for any family, any woman, there are single dads out there. There are a lot of, um, in underprivileged communities, there are a lot of men who actually don't have jobs and women who work. Um, and my suggestion is to go to your school district. And it does not mean you don't have, you can have a baby, but the school districts have the resources. They know the resources. Almost every school district now has somebody who sort of connects to the, especially in underserved um, districts, who connects to the outside world and who sort of knows what's going on and knows where the resources are. Um, and those are the people that we connect with in Westchester. We are constantly on the phone with the school districts. Um, and I'm always sending, even when women call. And so, so we don't actually don't distribute directly to the public. We only distribute through our community partners. And we get phone calls all the time. I need um, diapers for my baby. And I always say, call your school district. I don't, my kid doesn't go to school. It doesn't matter. Call. There's somebody there that can put you in touch with the right person. Um, so that's sort of my suggestion to families who are really struggling to, especially families, new families, you know, families with young children who sort of haven't been out in the world. I mean, I had postpartum depression with my daughter and I was still extraordinarily privileged. I lived in a beautiful apartment in a high rise in you know, New York City and nobody could help me. I couldn't find a resource to help me. And so I wish that I had known I could call really the New York City public schools. You can call them. They have social workers that are you know, there to help. So that's that's where I always send people. And I can't tell you what it's going to be like in St. Louis, Missouri. It may be different, but in my experience, that's the best place to start. Yeah. With respect to um, how to get um, things and how we give things, um, you know, so at the current moment, we provide um, the following necessities. We provide clothing to children. We, we say zero to 18, but we don't not give clothing to children who are aging out of the um out of the welfare system. So a lot of 18, 19, and 20 year olds um, have been living in foster care and then they age out and there's no help for them. There's just nothing. They're just left <laughs> to find a place for them to yeah. live and to work. And so we do help them. So we provide clothing. The clothing, it comes with uh, sneakers. It comes with 
new underwear and socks. Um, we provide diapers. We provide over um, 40,000 diapers a month to babies in Westchester. We provide menstrual products, about seven to 800 we call them uh, flow kits. They're a month's worth of menstrual products. Uh, we provide books. In fact, right before I got on the call with you today, I packed um, 725 books for um, one of the school districts that we work for, for their third and fourth graders. So next Monday, they're all going to go home with um, five books each. Um, we provide hygiene. So a big issue that's come up, and this is everywhere in our country, um, is that all of the doctors, I mean, I'm personally a, kind of sort of in love with Dr. Fauci. I think I think he's my boyfriend, <laughs> but he doesn't know it yet. Um, and, uh, he all, What does he say? Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, right? But, I mean, that's what we all hear. Wash your hands. Most people who are living in need do not have the money to buy soap. Yeah. They don't have the money to buy hand sanitizer. So we, we just created a program and, and it's at, we're not alone. I'm not, we're not unique. There's programs like this popping up all over the country. And we, we copied another program from St. Louis. That's why I keep saying it because I talked to them a lot recently. Um, but we will be giving out kits to all of our teens and all of the families of um, our babies that have shampoo, deodorant, uh, hand soap, body soap, and hand sanitizer on a monthly basis. You're going to get COVID if you don't wash your hands. Everyone yeah. tells us that. Yeah. So, um, so, and all of these needs, everything I'm talking about, it's needed anywhere. You want to go to Los Angeles and all the suburbs of Los Angeles, it's like this. You know, I have a friend who lives in Chicago. It's like this all over Chicago. I mean, you just can't find a place right now in the United States where this is not happening. And I know I've gone on another rant, but <laughs> this is all because of government. Right. I mean, I, you know, this is all because of decades and decades worth of poor policy when it comes to helping slash um, encouraging slash um, uplifting, uplifting. Thank you. I couldn't come yes. up with that word. Um, those who are living in poverty and also a very judgmental government, yeah. a very um, racist, um, elitist government. And so and, and I think that's on both sides. That's on both sides oh, yeah. of the aisle. Right. Oh, yeah. And I want that to be I, very I clear. Yeah. I said years. I want to tell you a story. You can cut this out if you want. But I, <laughs> I just learned this and it, and it, it, it makes me shiver. And I'm sure I'm not getting all of the uh, of the facts straight. So someone might <laughs> listen to this and say, she's lying. This is not what happened. In the 90s, Bill Clinton was 100% committed to creating some sort of poverty relief. Okay? That was back in the day when many people who are young right now don't realize that actually Democrats and Republicans worked together on a lot of stuff and worked across the aisle. And Bill Clinton was 100% committed that was his thing. The way we all know Obamacare, poverty was his thing. So he created TANF. And now I cannot remember for the life of me right now what TANF stands for. T-A-N-I-F. And it was the first overreaching poverty program that the federal government had put into effect since the Depression. Now, TANF gave federal dollars to states to distribute to those in need. And they could distribute to one of three categories. Now, the first category 
was to programs that helped people living in poverty. That's, I mean, that's amazing, right? The second program was to help families stay together because it was very important to recognize that divorce was a major part of the crumbling of the family unit and that if the family unit stayed together, then it would be much easier for people to get out of poverty. The third, the third thing was to make sure that women got married. What? I kid you not. And so when you take a state like New York at the time that was distributing the money, the money went and they did real, I don't even remember who was governor in the nineties, but whoever it was did great work. When you go into Louisiana, almost all the money went to two and three. Now, two and three were the compromise that Clinton had to make across the aisle to get this huge thing passed. So to this day, TANF is the largest financial dollars that go towards poverty still, although maybe something good's going to happen. There's a great op-ed piece in the New York Times yesterday. You should look at it about uh, Biden's plan, poverty plan. And, um, And so it's really that money has trickled to all different facets. And so it really gave the federal government's poverty aid such an out in places where they didn't want to direct it towards poverty or they didn't want to direct it towards minorities or they didn't want to direct it towards second, third, fourth generation poverty. Because by the way, a very little known fact, the majority of people living under the poverty line in the United States are Are white. white. Yep. Yep. And this is super important because you know what? Communities of color, marginalized communities of, um, you know, the LGBTQ community, the trans community, communities of color, um, single parent uh, communities, communities that have levels of marginalization, they are always at the front of the line when it comes to disproportionate negative impacts when something happens. In the pandemic, black and brown people are disproportionately getting sick and dying, yeah. right? Uh, uh, LGBTQ, mm-hmm. that community, disproportionately getting sick and dying. The poor, those living below the poverty line, getting sick and dying, not because they don't know to wash their hands, not because they don't know to wear a mask. It's because something that's a mask that's so simple for us to get, they cannot afford right mm-hmm. they cannot afford and um this is this is very important because and, and you know, and you know me just that this is you know diversity and inclusivity and equity is is a mission that is very important to me and near and dear to my heart and to the work that i do in the community um you know um w- with what little effort and measure that i am able to contribute um but this marginalization of the poor, of the of, of the people of color, of, of, of the gay and queer and lesbian community, this is systemic, mm-hmm. right? This is systemic. This is not one person did one bad thing. This is a country that has been built structure yes. upon structure, right? And it has improved and progressed and changed and amended-ish. Ish. But the foundation remains systemic, systemically prejudiced. And mothers, 
fall within that because there is no reason, and I will beat this drum to my grave, there is no reason that in a pandemic, our economy crumbles to a halt because schools are closed, because there is no place to park our children while women go to work. That is a national embarrassment that mm -hmm. is a tragedy and a blight, a stain on our mark, right? On our record as a developed superpower on, on this planet. So this issue for, for all the women listening above the poverty line, below the poverty line, at the poverty line, right? When you're a mother, the struggle is universal. And of course, there are levels of privilege, but, you know, the systemic prejudice and bias against us in the workplace, in access to resource, in access to support, in general services, and the ability to, to move up and beyond our socioeconomic class is severely lacking unless you are tied to a man, right? And we see it in TANF. I mean, right? Yes. And, 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 and a very interesting fact, I'm telling everyone who's listening, what's today's date? Today's the 25th of February, the 24th of February in the Times op-ed. There's an incredible article that talks about poverty in our country, how poverty was exacerbated significantly because of the pandemic. Um, but more specifically, how the United States is second to last in developed countries for how much money we give to families, okay? Yeah. Families. All that means family is somebody with a child. So right. it could be a single mother. It could be a single father, right? It's families. It's child. You know who we're behind? The only one that's behind us? Turkey. Wow. Every other developed country in the world gives more money to families because what does it show? Families create the next generation. Yep. That's the right. more families, and I mean a single mother and a child is a family, right? right? In fact, when I was coming back from my honeymoon with my husband, they said, they called us, we, we, we went abroad and they called us to, you know, um, to uh, immigration to come in and they said, uh, families. And so my husband went and he said, who's that? And they, he, my, Adam said, my wife. And he said, now you're a family. Like families are together. And I thought to myself, you know, a family could be two people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it the whole thing with Turkey, it just really like hit me. I was like, sheesh. I mean, what what more do we have to show? Yeah. Like we literally, like every other developed country in the world other than Turkey does better than us. Yeah. And I think this is, and, and, and this is something that, you know, this is something that is so important for, for everyone that's listening. You know, when we built jobs.mom, it wasn't just to say, okay, moms, you know, we know that you're struggling. We know all the, the, the cards that are stacked against you, and we're going to connect you to employers that are inclusive, that embrace you, that have, you know, gender neutral leave policies and, and services and resources and phase back programs, right? There's no reason why I, you know, um, with a, a 60 day old baby had to go back to work. Yeah. You know, there is no reason. And, and 60 days is gracious. There are women who went back to work a week later, two weeks later. This is a disservice to the women of this economy. And what we need to do and what we are doing at jobs.mom is really pushing 
on one hand, there's there's something there's 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 a limit to the scope that we have right now and how much we can advocate and push for in terms of governmental change. But mm-hmm. you know, we're doing that. But our focus is really to put the onus on employers mm-hmm. and to say, these are women that are making you money, mm-hmm. helping you grow, building your brand, keeping your lights on. The least you can do is when they leave to eject another human being from their body is give them some time to stop bleeding before they come back to the office. I'm dead serious. I I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I had a miscarriage sitting in my desk, sitting at my desk <laughs> at my firm, because if I, I, if I left, I knew I was going to want to go on leave. I was going to eventually have a baby that year. And literally I sat at my desk bleeding, having a miscarriage. So I, I, it, 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 it is a tragedy. It really is. I mean, for me, one of the things I advocate most, and actually at 914 Cares, we have no full-time employees. Um, because I really think flexibility is the answer. And the one thing, and the one benefit that I really think has come out, and I spend a lot of time talking to, to working moms, the, the biggest benefit of, of the, the pandemic is Zoom. It's, yeah. it, it has changed the way we can work, where we can work, how we can work. Um, I mean, what, what I do, we have to be here. Um, but, but really, it's, it, I think it's afforded flexibility that wasn't there before. I mean, I always said when people said, well, how do you make it work? How do you work at this major law firm, right? Um, and, you know, literally top 100 law firm, how do you work there part time and make it work? And I said, I, know, I don't work part time. I get paid part time. Right. I work full-time, but flexible. Yes. So they know, they know I'm putting in 80 hours a week and they're only paying me for 20. Let's just be clear. But I, it's worth it to me to have the flexibility. And I think that the, the Zoom programs will wind up being a really amazing opportunity for employers to be able to use, um, to, to help attract and maintain women of childbearing years. So I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of women listening have been through fertility issues. I personally think that when women are getting, inge- I, I, both of my children are IVF. I personally think that women, that women, when women are getting injected with like extra doses of hormones for five days straight. We should I've be able to seen see those needles. And I've seen those needs. needles, Jess, I've seen them. <laughs> so, and so I mean, it would have changed my life to be able to just stay at home, put on my makeup, but like not have to wear pants. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is something I joke about now. Like I haven't worn hard pants in a year since, since the pandemic started. Right. But but you're absolutely right. There's no excuse anymore. We have proved. Right. right? There is proof of concept that we are living right now that flexible remote work is possible, is productive, maybe even more productive. Right. More cost effective, more profitable. There's no excuse. And this is what we're doing at Jobs.Mom. We are highlighting employers that are really leading the charge in allowing for flexibility, allowing for hybrid work or fully remote work, full-time and part-time, right? Mm-hmm. That, that have generous leave policies. And by generous, I mean, generous by American standards, okay? I mean, like you're not coming back to work seven days postpartum, you're coming back in a few months and it's paid that your husband or your partner can also take leave. That if you're going through IVF or if you've adopted, right, whatever you're, wherever you are on this journey, your company is supporting you because this is a way you show appreciation for your employees. And 
it's proof right now. And what we're doing at jobs.mom, you'll see our featured employers are, are the companies that have really put their money where their mouth is. And it's not performative. It's not, you know, we support women and we are inclusive. And what that means really is that, you know, we've painted the bathroom walls pink. That is not inclusivity right? That is not inclusivity. So visit us at jobs.mom. Check out those inclusive employers of which there are much to my heart's um, happiness more than I had anticipated. And what I had anticipated was zero because I am a dark hearted cynic, (laughs) Um, but they are there and we applaud them. And the second thing that I will say is you don't have to be a CEO of a nonprofit to help other people. You don't have to. You don't have to have an organization. You don't even need to know what you're doing. You can have a a pair of shoes, a shirt, a bag, a a half-used pack of diapers. And I promise you there is somebody that could benefit from it. I would want to just say to the audience that if you don't live here, but you, you want to help in your own community, you can feel free to reach out to me. We have contacts in almost every 50 state. And I'm including Hawaii. We talked to the Hawaii Diaper Bank on a on a weekly basis. It's just Jessica at 914cares.org. Shoot me an email and I will connect you with local nonprofits that you can work with. And we will put all that information as well. Jess's email, the website to 914cares and any other resources just that you might have. We'll put all that information on the episode description. So check it out there. Um, Jessica Reinman, I have monopolized an hour of your time (laughs) during which somebody probably needed a diaper or a pair of shoes and I have um, held them uh, from that. So Thank you so much, Jess, for joining us today on Moms at Work. You are an inspiration. You are amazing. I'm so honored to call you a friend and a neighbor. And um, the women that are listening, um, I'm sure, have benefited greatly from, from your perspective. I feel the same. The feeling is mutual. And I thank everyone for anyone and everyone who listens, because if I can inspire one woman to donate or one woman to look for part-time work, flexible work, that is a win for me. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, for all of you that are listening, um, that's 914cares.org. That was Jessica Reinman, CEO of 914cares, a Westchester-based 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, and of course, for more information on those employers I was talking about for flexible, remote uh, job opportunities and resources, uh, career resources for mothers of all family status, all socioeconomic classes, all skills and backgrounds, visit jobs.mom. Um, And of course, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy, wash your hands like Dr. Fauci's been telling us, and we'll see you next time. Follow us on social media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out more episodes at jobs.mom slash moms at work.